Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $137 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors their strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues Brian Angerami and Jeff Russell, Portfolio Managers for ClearBridge Mid-Cap Growth and Smid-Cap Growth Strategies. And the topic of today's podcast is Seeking Innovation and Quality in Small and Mid-Cap Companies. So this is a topic that I, I really enjoy talking about because if you think about today's leaders, whether it's Amazon, Google, GE, um, you name it, they all started off as small cap companies, eventually made their way to mid cap, large cap, and eventually megas. But the interesting thing about being in the SMID space, which is small and mid cap, is that it allows managers to identify those special companies that are taking market share that are going to be tomorrow's leaders and allows them to compound that return of your portfolio over a number of couple of years. You don't necessarily have to sell it once it gets to three or four billion. But the definition for SMID is different depending on what management teams you're talking to. So do you have a range what you really define as SMID? We, uh, we take our clues from the benchmarks. Um, at the low end, we really don't look at anything less than a billion dollars. And on the high end, we feel uncomfortable buying anything that's above $15 billion. But once it reaches $15 billion, will you maybe let it run a little bit? Yeah, going to $15 billion doesn't force a sale, um, but it certainly raises our antennas and we'll be looking for a, a replacement candidate you know, soon after. I would imagine being under a billion dollars, it's more of a liquidity constraint at that point that you, you don't want to be too big of an investor there because you, if you ever wanted to exit that position, it potentially could be you know, detrimental to our shareholders. I think liquidity is a is a, something to consider, but also then you're talking about maybe a little bit more risky company that um, we may not be comfortable with. So, it all boils down to risk management at the end of the day. You know, if you think about small cap companies, uh, I, I saw an interesting statistic here recently that 34% of the index doesn't have any any earnings. Right, I think that's a pretty risky proposition, especially if we get a downturn or or some economic volatility here in the near term. So what do you do, besides obviously those constraints as far as market cap is concerned, to be risk aware? Um, I know you have a quality bias in the portfolio. You look at uh, return on invested capital. Tell me a little bit about that de-risking at the, the individual name level. So Clearbridge thinks and practices about quality investing every day. It's, uh, it's, we're hardwired that way, and it's an ingrained part of our culture. It really comes from an awareness that we're investing other people's monies and investors are putting their trust in our judgment. So Brian and I, we've and many of our portfolio colleagues have spent a lot of time with investors and we appreciate that the savings and the investment decisions we're making are a critical connection to those investors' educational needs, their financial stability, their retirement needs, sure. and that we're investing other people's money. So let's think about why companies go that quality route and why, therefore, they become winning long-term investments. Really, it's an assurance that they're providing the best service and products to their customers, which makes it a sticky, recurring business. Companies want to put good products out there. It wins customer loyalty. It gets repeat business. 
And it also will enable the business to have uh, the ability to cross-sell new products and services to those clients. Well, I would imagine happy customers would talk about that experience, and obviously you can get ancillary sales from that. Exactly. And the opposite is equally true in this day of instantaneous social media reaction. If a customer doesn't have a good experience, it's out there instantly. And it can be very detrimental to a business. But it also leads to other, uh, other benefits like employee satisfaction. If we have businesses that are having recurring revenue and are growing very nicely, employees are satisfied, they have opportunities to grow with the business, and that can lower the cost for a business. So there are really a couple of benefits as, as we think about uh, quality investing, and those are the returns, the returns on invested capital and the sustainability of that. Secondly, it's uh, capital preservation because if you're a quality investor, it means you avoid tail risk in the portfolio. The bad actors, the financially hobbled companies, which can be very detrimental to performance and, and client returns. And I think I think Warren Buffett famously said the first rule about making money is not losing money. And so, so true. So second true. rule is not forgetting that first rule. And then finally, it's the opportunity. Companies that have the pristine financials can benefit through a financial downturn because they can continue to invest, continue to put R&D and new solutions in front of clients and attract quality talent when other competitors are struggling. So we think it's a huge advantage to be allied for the long term in quality position businesses. So I know, Brian, and you've looked at the quality component in, in mid-caps and how that's fared versus their, their large-cap brethren before. Maybe you can share some perspective on that. Yeah, we thought it might make sense to look at how small and mid-cap high-quality companies do relative to lower-quality companies. You've seen a lot of studies on in the mega-caps or large-caps. And so we looked at these companies uh, in a number of different metrics, balance sheet strength, free cash flow, uh, returns on invested capital. And we looked at uh, over 50 years of data going back to the 1960s. What we found is that there were only two rolling five-year periods over the last 50-plus years in which low-quality companies outperformed high-quality companies. Only two? Only two. Wow. And they would go back to the, the second half of the 1960s and the period immediately after the credit crisis, which, you know, you think about it. Interesting. It, it kind of makes sense, right? The Fed stepped in, provided liquidity, you know, pushed interest rates down to basically zero or, or negative rates. Um, and that buoyed the lowest quality companies to the same extent or even more so than the higher quality companies because they tend to have more leverage, et cetera. And so so the amount that they pay for that leverage goes down. Right. Their cost of capital goes down, their cost of debt goes down, right? There's liquidity available for them. And so it, it makes sense that lower quality companies during that period, 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, did pretty well, especially relative to high quality. Now, fast forward to 16, 17, 18, where we are today as uh, interest rates normalize, as Fed you know, offered liquidity normalizes, um, we think it makes sense that the market will focus much more on fundamentals uh, and therefore reward the highest quality companies uh, relative to low quality. And I think you're starting to see that just over the last 18, 24 months. Well, sure. As the, the cost of capital rises, as the need to refinance uh, becomes higher, that's going to be more and more of a burden on your ability to, to have free cash flow and to be able to survive. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of studies that said that because of QE and those types of extraordinary policies, it's allowed a lot of zombie companies to, uh, to exist. I, I think also, if you're thinking about the small mid-cap space from a risk management perspective, one of the things that, that I think is probably important, at least more than the large cap space, is management. 
um, just because usually you have the founder or the innovator there that's creating that strategic vision, but they have their hands in everything. Talk to me a little bit about that. Is, is that something that's high on your priority list? Yes, it is, Jeff. Um, so in terms of our risk process, um, we think a lot about uh, the financial strength of business. And Brian, I think, articulated very well why it's so crucial. And clearly, we want to be satisfied that a company has great products and services. But having a visionary discipline management is very, very important to us. And we speak to every management before we make an investment. Uh, bigger companies frequently have well-developed processes and deeper management teams, whereas smaller companies very often have the CEO and CFO intimately involved with customer decisions, R&D decisions, and, and everything that is relevant in terms of securing orders. So we think it's crucially important as part of our due diligence investigation to speak with every management team before making investment to understand not only the key drivers of the business, like the revenues, the costs, the capital needs, but also what management is thinking about capital allocation and contingency planning when things are a little tougher in their industries or when there's sure. a competitive threat. Well, obviously, 2007 and 2008, if uh, you didn't have many contingency plans, I'm sure that, that hurt a lot of companies. It did. In one of our best management companies, for instance, IDEX, when we first got to know them well, they had a several-level contingency playbook that they kept current on where they could potentially cut back on discretionary spending, reduce a little bit cost, and that kept them in terrific shape and were able to add to the strength and, and resources of the business in the very sharp 08-09 downturn. Again, it speaks to having progressive managements that can balance offense and defense, that they know the key priorities of keeping their staff happy, their products fresh, and therefore have the wherewithal to drive the business pretty much regardless of externalities and capital market conditions. You know, something that I've been reading a lot about here is uh, M&A activity. Um, you're seeing a lot of activist investors uh, coming in, especially at this part of the cycle. Um, I know that there's been a number of activists that have been interested in, in some of your companies, maybe looking for the, the same qualities that, that you're looking for as well. Um, talk to me about that. Is this something that's, that's new? Uh, no, it's not a new phenomenon. It's certainly grabbing a little bit more headlines uh, over the last 5, 10, 15 years. But um, activism uh, is, you know, a, the most sincere form of, you know, criticism, if you will, or at least, you know, constructive pushback uh, for, for a management team. I'd say overall, it's net beneficial. You know, if you think about the reasons why someone would become active, if you will, in pushing back on a management team. Sometimes their interests are not maybe 100% aligned with us as, as shareholders. Of course. I mean, there's lots of constituents that a, that a management team needs, needs to uh, answer to. But uh, it may be just that there's a, it, the company is not operating operationally as well as it should. And then in the real extreme cases, um, you know, you see sometimes uh, activists agitating for full management change or even a sale of the company. And in some cases, sale of the company may be the right strategic move. Maybe putting that together with another or a larger company may give them greater access to capital, ability to reinvest in the business. So it's out there. You know, Jeff and I and, and Aram and Derek, we don't, we don't see ourselves as activists, maybe, as the way people normally think of them. But, you know, as Jeff had just mentioned, we, we get intimately involved uh, with the management teams of the companies uh, that we own. You know, we don't hesitate to make a suggestion or um, to give constructive criticism where we think the business could be going in a slightly different direction. 
Sure. And, and then uh, from a, a strategic acquisition perspective, obviously with repatriation here in the U.S., uh, for those listening not familiar with repatriation, um, all the companies here in the U.S. have about $3 trillion um, worth of foreign earnings locked up abroad. Um, and with the tax law changes, that money's coming home and about $1.1 trillion of it is liquid in cash. So you have companies with a lot of money and they could do a number of different things with that. They could do CapEx, they could do increased dividends, they can do share buybacks, but you're seeing a lot of M&A activity and you're starting to see that pick up quite a bit. Um, have you seen it in your portfolios yet? Uh, yes, we have. Thankfully, we've been on the right side of uh, some of it. Uh, so uh, we Meaning love to see that. Your company's got bought rather than <laughs> right, bought right, a company. Exactly. Um, but just, just a couple thoughts there. Um, the time is really conducive for M&A activity. As you mentioned before, yes, there's repatriated cash on its way back to the United States. But that said, cost of capital across the board is low, right? The cost of financing is extremely low. After eight or nine years of economic expansion, boards and the executive management teams of these companies are, you know, the, their own confidence is rising. So they're willing to sometimes take that risk uh, of M&A. All the, all the surveys are through the roof at this point? Yeah, right, exactly. And then you get into some of the tax law changes beyond uh, what we just saw as far as repatriation. I mean, you know, lower corporate tax rates are just simply going to add to the free cash flow generation of the larger companies and add to the cash that they have on their balance sheets. And so you put all that together and Jeff and I would not be surprised to see, you know, continued, you know, strong M&A activity. Yeah. Following on that, you know, larger companies are really a bit starved for innovation compared to smaller and mid-cap companies. And with the economy accelerating now, a lot of larger companies, they really lack that entrepreneurial verve and, candidly, a sense of urgency that we find in smaller and mid-cap growth companies. And, Jeff, do you think that's maybe a function of them not investing in CapEx like they traditionally have? I think it's largely a cultural difference that smaller companies do have access to capital from private equity investors, from venture capitals, and they can generally grow self-sufficiently. But many of the companies in which we have significant investments are founder-led, and there's a real sense of urgency and go-to-market strategies, and in many cases, a land-grab opportunity to be first, fast, and best. So we're very excited about that. And the larger companies, which are flush with cash for a variety of reasons that Brian just covered, they covet that growth and innovation. They swoop down market cap to acquire some of our small and mid-cap companies. I think a good example is we were an early investor in a uh, consumer products company called Blue Buffalo, which manufactures premium pet food products and has been outgrowing the industry substantially uh, as consumers are willing to make healthier choices for their pets and not just for themselves. My, my dog loves Blue Buffalo, by the way. Good. We, we're very happy <laughs> that, you're, you're, that your household is a customer. Here. And we thought the company could realistically sustain low double-digit top-line growth and expand margins over time. General Mills, uh, which is a challenged no-growth core packaged foods business, swooped in and paid a astronomical valuation, in our view, for that of an excess 20 times operating cash flow. So that really speaks wow. to the attraction of rapid growth companies with good franchises and really the values that more challenged larger companies are willing to pay for growth businesses. Now, disruption is the theme across a number of your holdings, right? Obviously, Blue Buffalo is disrupting the traditional pet food industry. Are you seeing disruption in any other areas? I think we've looked for opportunities for large addressable markets and innovative solutions across the entire spectrum of industries. It's generally easiest to find in healthcare and inf information technology industries. 
which are about 40-odd percent of the benchmark in which we invest. So to give you a few examples of what we're finding, one of our larger holdings is a company called Insulate. They developed a very innovative uh, insulin delivery mechanism as an alternative to traditional insulin injections. And now that company has 140,000 users globally. It's growing about 20% a year and provides a convenient, preferable way of, of solution for, for people who have diabetes. Well, I, I just went to the doctor this morning and got a shot. I would much rather put a patch on my arm than, than take a shot any day. Yeah. Right. Another example in the healthcare sector is a company we own called Metadata Solutions. And they originally pioneered um, electronic data collection of clinical trial data for pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies. And it's hard to believe that when we made the investment, over half of that data was still being collected manually, subject to all the errors and Excel spreadsheet difficulties and that kind of stuff. So Metadata came up with a cloud-based solution, and then they went on and developed a, a whole bunch of analytical uh, software solutions on top of that to expedite and to make medical trials that much more efficient. And it's a sort of a gee whiz number, but anything that can be done to bring down the cost and improve the efficiencies of medical trials is much to be applauded as we struggle with healthcare, healthcare costs in this company, in this country rather. And it's estimated it costs something like two and a half billion dollars now to bring a new successful product ultimately through the approval Two and a half billion. Two and a half billion. So metadata is helping pharmaceutical companies get to the finish line that much more efficiently. So those are a couple of examples in the healthcare sector where we have unmet need and bring a disruptive product to markets. But but there's lots of opportunities in, in other sectors as well. Being in the healthcare space, I know biotech's a, a pretty big uh, constituency in the SMID index. Um, I guess investing in these types of companies, it, it what allows you to sidestep a lot of the guesswork, I guess, if you will, on bringing a drug to commercialization. Uh, and so it's not just healthcare space. It's not just uh, IT. You're seeing uh, innovation and disruption across the board in many other industries. And most of those, or a lot of those other industries are often thought of as um, less growthy, you know, more steady eddy uh, sort of segments of the economy. You take, for instance, the used car market, obviously not going to grow much more faster than population growth. Uh, and we know that is what that is because the drivers were already born at least 18 years ago, right? right? So, but you look at something like the used car market, which was notoriously uh, shady. Um, everyone's got a, a tough story about a, a, a bad experience they had with a used car salesman. They even came out with lemon laws. Uh, right? That, right? Yes, uh, exactly. But, you know, the original disruptor in that market was CarMax. And we've actually owned that, invested in that company before. And they were the first to bring the no-haggle um, sort of notion into the transaction, if you will. And therefore, you know, there was a lot more transparency and you felt better about buying it, a used car. Well, there's a new business model brought by Carvana, which is the first, basically the first uh, and only online only business model in the used car market. Now, it just shows you how far we've come. In fact, just recently I saw a survey which showed that amongst millennials, over 50% of them were willing to buy a used car online, sight unseen. Never driven. Which, right? I mean, a used car, there could be so much that went on uh, with that used car, right? Um, and so, but obviously, consumer preferences are changing. And Carvana is really, really answering, you know, that, that new demand. And so, you know, interesting story, but in a sleepy business like used cars. You could say the same for, for new cars, 
Um, again, we know what the long-term growth rate uh, of new cars uh, is, um, but the, I think, amount of technological change you're about to see in the next 10, 20 years may be more than the last 100-plus years combined. Wow. Um, you know, you've, you see it on your commercials. Cars are... Uh, stopping for you before you back into something or someone, thank God. But that's the earliest um, sort of edge, if you will, of autonomy uh, or autonomous driving. And then over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you'll take that from just braking for you to being able to release your hands from the steering wheel, if you want. I'm not saying that you may feel comfortable doing that. Make sure other people do it first before I, I try that. But but you may have that option, or you will have that option if you want it. Uh, and so we see companies like Aptiv and Delphi bringing not only new autonomous technologies to market, but also uh, technologies that allow for hybrid electrification and full electrification uh, of the car. Uh, and so, you know, maybe not as um, dynamic uh, a growth industry as IT or healthcare, but um, there's a lot of change there. The entertainment industry, right? If you think back 10, 15, 20 years ago, artists made their money selling CDs uh, and or before that records and eight tracks, you, you go on and on. But the, the live entertainment aspect of that was really to uh, excite their, their base and uh, entice them to go and buy CDs. They didn't make a lot of they didn't make a lot of money uh, on tour. And now what we're finding is CDs are gone. And the, the profit model for downloading, you know, individual songs, et cetera, whether it's a, a Spotify or a Pandora, uh, is not as lucrative. And so now the live entertainment aspect of the business is coming back uh, and is necessary or for these artists to, to make money. Well, and they make so, they make a lot more money now than they ever did with right. this new business model. And so, you know, a company like Live Nation is is helping them do that through the uh, um, organizing, you know, concert schedules and the promotional activity. They also uh, own Ticketmaster, so they're helping the artists realize the fair value uh, of of the tickets that they're selling. So, there again, another great example where we're finding disruption and innovation and growth in a segment of the economy that is typically thought of as a non-growth segment. One area that, that I have a lot of conversations about with clients is the cloud. You know, cloud broadly speaking. You know, what is the cloud? And are you finding good opportunities in that space? Yes. Um, so the cloud, I think, is the easiest way to think about the cloud is it's a win-win for both the, for both the manufacturer, or the software provider, and the end customer. Um, instead of having to download one single version of, of that software and that lives, you know, on premise wherever wherever you work or, or live, uh, in this case, you're going to be able to have that product downloaded to you or pushed to you and updates pushed to you so you don't have to worry about uh, security bridges being installed, et cetera. And so I think cloud and, and SaaS, um, which is short for software as a service, is just a wonderful uh, evolution uh, of software um, selling, if you will, and delivery um, because it's great for the customer. Um, they get to buy just as much software and service as they want it, so they can line it up with their own cost structure. Um, they get updates uh, and new versions of their software. And then for, for the manufacturer, if you will, the company that is, has 
manufactured the software, um, they get a much more visibility in their revenue stream. They get um, longer term, more visible contracts. And so we think this is clearly an innovation that's here to stay. You know, we found some very good investments in, in cloud enablement companies. One of those is a company called Wix, uh, which allows small and mid-sized businesses to do high quality, very flexible and rapidly implemented website design. Uh, in our view, it has the best suite of cloud-based tools and allows anyone to build a professional web presence, including me, who's all thumbs, but to edit, <laughs> to do marketing, workflow, back office integration. In addition, they have a new product set, which is going to allow Wix to be even more aggressively pursuing professional website developers. So we think that's a terrific company with great products, a powerful business model, throws a lot of cash. And we think that could be a very winning investment for us for many years to come. And maybe the last question I have for you, you know, this is the ninth year of this bull market. Obviously, the market's run a lot. Earnings have run a lot. Um, but valuations are a little bit more on the, the full side. How are you finding some uh, attractive investment ideas nowadays, like some of the, the newer names in the portfolios? I think it's fair to say that valuation across the board has you know, moved up and to the right, just along with stocks in general. But if there's one comment uh, to make or to be taken away, it's that individual companies within the small and mid-cap segment of the market can be found and do offer uh, re return and, and absolute value. You know, yes, you are seeing the IPO uh, window uh, of the market wide open again, or Finally. at least, at least uh, <laughs> maybe not wide open, but maybe three quarters open, I guess. Um, you saw 160 uh, IPOs take place in 2017, but that's that's uh, is that, is well that a large uh, number historically? It's a speaking? decent number, but but um, you go back to 2014, we saw uh, saw um, closer to 275, 280 of them. Wow. Uh, I think you know we're constantly surveying the IPO landscape. Um, we do it for for two reasons. One, we're firm believers in that only the paranoid survive, so we're constantly surveying the landscape for, you know, those small new companies that may be nipping at the heels of, of investments that we've already made, right? So we want to make sure that we don't get disenfranchised, if you will, sure. uh, or caught from behind. Um, and then secondly, we have invested and do often invest in IPOs. I, you know, it's not like something we do, you know, every day. Uh, but we have found uh, investments that make a lot of sense to us that we're excited about. And what you see typically is we'll take a small investment in the company then and maybe add to it over time through secondary offerings. Uh, Just to get to know the management team to be better, see how they execute. Jeff, I think it's important to highlight that um, as active investors, we're not buying the market. So we're not buying an overall multiple. We are targeting individual businesses that have financial strength, great products or services, and those smart managements that can navigate through difficult times and great times. And Brian and our partners, we have both the judgment to find the right businesses, but also to wait for the right price. Capital markets are volatile. We all know that. Uh, there are air pockets in some of these stocks, and we have the experience and the patience to wait for the right price in these securities and these investments where we can make multiples of the upsides compared to a, a reasonable downside scenario for an investment. So right stock, right price, right business, right management, that's sort of a clear bridge superfecta for an active manager. And obviously, if you buy them in the, the small cap space, being a SMID portfolio, you can let that company compound their returns over time and become you know, the winners and help you outperform the, the benchmark. Of course, and that's one of the reasons we started our SMID and mid cap growth 
uh, strategies is we already had a small cap growth strategies and we had these great businesses which were outgrowing the upper band of small cap. And we wanted to keep uh, making those investments or owning those great businesses for our clients and making them available in larger capitalization strategies. Well, great. I, I think that's all the, the time that we have here today. Jeff and Brian, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. And uh, everybody, thank you for listening to uh, the ClearBridge podcast. Hope you all have a great March, and we look forward to having you back for April's edition. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of March 9th, 2018, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from the use of this information. Thanks.